sponsored by the Dunleary Rattown Local Enterprise Office. You're listening to Business Eye on Dublin South FM. And welcome, yes folks, here to Dublin South FM. Another week, another joyful interview with an amazing guest as I have great guests each and every week. So, to this week we're going to talk about success. What is success? Is it money? Is it freeing up your time? Is it a lifestyle change? Whatever it is, it's personal to each and every one of us. However, to achieve success, you must have a system, a process, a behavioral change to reach it. So I ask you the question, are you implementing procedures into your daily life so you can reach whatever goal you have set in your life? Or are you banging your head against a wall, running around in circles with no end in sight? This week, I have a very good friend, Jeff Smith. And Jeff has been on the radio with us many, many moons ago. And this week, we have called him back because, in my opinion, Jeff, if he tells us today, has the answers. Jeff, welcome to Dublin South FM Radio. Hi, Joseph. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on your show once more. Thank you for having me back. Yes, it has been an amazing journey from, uh, I think it was 2016, 2017, when when the motor trade was in my veins and you were in the motor trade, recognized as a KPI guy. And when you agreed to come on the show, I was thrilled um, and that then formed a friendship, which we have kept going for many years. And um, it's great to have you back on. And the reason why I want you back on today is so, you know, you had an amazing story. The last time we spoke about KPIs and the motor trade. But, you know, for a man that comes from a humble beginning, who is very passionate and has purpose, has achieved so much personally. And I hope today that you may be able to share some of that with our audience so they, we could call it luck, persistence, can have a little bit of it as well. Sure, why not? Sure. So the the secret, of course, Joe, is not in the answers, it's in the questions. So I'm putting all the pressure onto you and relieving myself from all of that. And that's it, folks. Thank you for this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Jeff, before we get into, you know, success, for Mm -hmm. you, it was, you know, a, a man who at 18 when the rest of us were probably spending too much time on running around um, as 18-year-olds do and not having an idea of what we want in life, there was a small part of yourself that decided to go out and try and find out what was happening. So let's start from there and tell your story. Sure. It's quite fascinating what you say, actually, because at that time... I was doing just the same as you. I was blowing all the money I had and all all of that stuff that we do when we were 18. But what happened in my life? At that time, I was a professional musician. Pretty good, and I used to play in nightclubs at nighttime. So I'm going back now to 1978. 
So if a cabaret artist wanted to sing at a nightclub, they needed a live musician. That was me. So CD had not yet been invented. Backing tracks had not been thought of. So you just needed live music. So by night, I used to play keyboards in nightclubs. And then during the day, I used to sell them. And one day, this is when my life changed. Now, let me put it into context here. My dad was a very clever guy. He was a manager of the largest machine shop in Europe. Worked on some phenomenal projects like the Thames flood barrier, bridges all over the world, and he was well known in his field. However, I won't say we were poor, because Joe, I think poor is a state of mind. We were broke, that's a state of pocket. So at the time, we lived in a council house and we could buy the house from the council for £2,000 and my dad could not afford it. So he just carried on paying rent. So that, that's the background. That, that's the context of which the story begins for me to introduce what happened on this day. It was a beautiful sunny day. I'm working at a music store in Birmingham city centre Outside of the store, a Porsche 911 Targa. That's the one where the roof comes off. In black, it pulls up outside of my store. And this is like my dream car. The engine roars and the guy gets out and he looks at the store and then he looks at me and he nods at me and he smiles. So... I nod at him, smile, I think, beautiful car. And then he comes into the store. So a long story short, he buys the top of the range keyboard organ as it was then, price £4,000. That's double the price of the house we were living in that my dad could not afford. And I used to work in the music store, so I had access to this equipment because I could never buy it. So this guy pulls up in a Porsche 911, lots of money, buys the top of the range keyboard, and he said to me, Jeff, I have a special request. Will you deliver this keyboard to my home on Monday, uh, set it up in my home, and play me some music? And that's not an unusual request. So I said, yeah, that's okay. So um, I said, we, we also have a request too. I'll, I'll call him Dave because that's his name. So I said, Dave, uh, we also have a special request and that is we need cleared funds before we deliver. And he said, yes, that's no problem. He said, it's Thursday now. I'll pop in on Saturday morning pay what I need to pay, and then you can deliver on Monday, and then we're all good to go. I said, yeah, that's fantastic. So on Monday, he comes in, the black Porsche 911 Targa pulls up outside of the store again. He walks in with a plastic bag and tips out £4,000 in folding money. I mean, well, I mean, you couldn't do that nowadays with money laundering and things like that, but then... Wow. So we, I called the boss. We managed to get rid of the cash. Monday comes along and I go to his home. This is 1978. It's walled 
property with electric gates and a video at the front. This is like James Bond to me. You know, you know I, I ring the bell and then he comes on. I say who I am, these electric gates open and my jaw is on the floor. So I drive the vehicle along the driveway and I can hear the gravel crunching underneath the tires. And there's this beautiful fountain with a mermaid at the end and you can hear the water sprinkling. And then there's double oak doors. He opens the doors, he waves, he said, hi Jeff, come on through to the east wing. This mansion was U-shaped. It was massive and I'd never ever seen anything like it. So I walked in first and, and one of the things that stands out in my mind, I put my foot inside of the doorway and my foot, Joe, it sank into the carpets. I mean, really sank. I thought, wow, this is just incredible. So I, I walked across to the East Wing, past the grand piano in the hallway, and it was, it was like a Hollywood movie set. It was just amazing. So I uh, installed keyboard for him, played for a couple of hours. Uh, we had a couple of drinks, nice cup of coffee and things. I then drove home. And that's where my journey started. That was the catalyst for it all because I thought... How is it that someone like Dave had so much wealth? And of course, at 18, you attribute success to equal money. How, how is it that he's amassed so much wealth? And he's my dad, a super intelligent guy working on massive projects all over the world, and we're broke. What's the difference? So then my question at that time was... How does a millionaire become a millionaire? Because I attributed success to equal millionaire. And I guess most people at 18 probably do the same. It changes later on, of course, what is success. That's a different things for different people. But at 18, I was exposed to some really famous people, some rich people, and some really successful people because... I was exposed to them on stage at night time, playing in the nightclubs. So I befriended quite a lot of them and started asking a few questions about how they achieved their success in their lives. And then over the next 15 years or so, I interviewed, I mean formally interviewed, 325 millionaires, rich people, famous people, successful people. And here's the interesting thing. What I found out is that they all do 11 things in common. If you will, the 11 steps of success. So whether this was for making a million dollars, whether it's for writing a book, whether it's for being a successful cabaret star, a film actor, or whatever success meant for them, they all followed the same 11 steps. Now, here's what's fascinating. Some of the people were aware of the 11 steps. Some people were aware of some of the steps, maybe two or three. And some people were completely unaware, but they were doing them all 
anyway kind of innate fascinating and what um these uh interviews and questionnaires what i found fascinating was when you made the people aware of the 11 steps that they were not aware that they were doing and i said oh you did this and you did that and they said oh yeah once they became aware of these 11 steps then it accelerated their own journey to success to make things happen even faster. So the science behind it all helped them. So then later on in life, if we fast forward now, I quit being a musician. I went into the automotive industry, 1983, and then progressed from salesperson to sales manager to general manager to director of a board. And what I did myself was apply these 11 steps myself. And then I became um, operations director of 10 fully blown uh, franchise car dealerships, selling something like 10,000 cars a year, uh, 3,000 people involved, service departments, parts departments. So huge, huge organization at a relatively young age. I then left and joined a consultancy company to help other people how to do it. And then in 1999, I decided to do my own thing. And then I wrote the book. And that's how you first came to know me, Joe, because you had a copy of the book. So what I did at this stage, I applied the 11 steps of success to that book and everything that surrounds it. And now I'm very proud to say I'm on record as the most successful author in history on the subjects of KPI and business management. And it's all about understanding that process, implementing it, and how the science of success works around your life in whatever field of endeavor you choose. Why do we as a race, not naturally have these 11 steps. What blocks people from having the success or tapping into knowingly or unknowingly the pathway and the implementation of it is whatever you want to achieve in your life? Yeah, that's a great question. And it is actually one of the steps of success. And it's fear. That's the thing. So you'll hear lots of people say, have a goal, have a big, big goal beyond your dreams and all of this kind of stuff, and, and it will come true. And, of course, that's only the beginning. There's much more to success than that. But what happens to us If we go back to caveman times, you've heard of fight or flight. We get exposed into a situation where an animal will come to us who wants to eat us. Do we fight or do we flight? So this is the protective side of our being that keeps us alive. Otherwise, we'd die. We're not going to win a fight with a lion, are we? Until the day comes, we get tools and rifles and, and stuff like that. <laughs> so 
So this fight or flight remains within us today. So when we get uh, an audacious goal and something that we want, automatically, innately, fear steps in. It's this fight or flight. And this is to protect us. And it says, oh, I'd love to have this, but I can't do it because of that. And our primitive side, this fight or flight, takes over and it prevents us from moving forward in the direction we would perhaps like to move forward in. So it's actually the fear. And what's interesting is many of the things that we fear actually don't exist at all. Our brain creates them in order to protect us. So it's understanding that fear, working with the fear in order to move into the direction of your choosing. Fear makes us stressful. And when we're under stress, we can't think creatively. And then all of, all of our creative thoughts that move us in the direction of the goal are blocked by this fear. I would use it, I use the analogy of uh, hitting the wall when you're doing weight training or running for a marathon and you suddenly, the person then can continue on. And I believe that is the same process that people have in business. And what happens is they get tired or they, you know, they, they, you know, I can't do this or something takes them to the side. So instead of implementing what they need to do, they're in the attic laying whatever made to do that was on the, on the procrastination list about five years ago. But once someone then breaks through this wall, marathon running, weightlifting business, the mind then switches. There's a paradigm shift and then other things start to fall into place. Is that what you're, would that be the same, um, the way of describing what you're mentioning, Jeff? No, it's not the same. What you're talking about is a belief system. Now, let me give you an analogy to, to explain the difference between the two here. In the 1950s, it was believed worldwide that the four-minute mile could not be done. It was impossible. Doctors were saying if a human being ran a four-minute mile, they'd have cardiac arrest. The liver would explode. The kidneys wouldn't work. The, the human body cannot do it. It's physically impossible, and it could not be done. And then, of course, Roger Bannister comes along and completes the three minutes, 59 points, whatever. Now, what happened then? Roger Bannister was the paradigm shifter. So here we have a new paradigm in that the four-minute mile or the belief about the four-minute mile is now shattered. It's broken. So Roger Bannister did it. You know what's fascinating? The world could not believe it could be done. How long did he hold the record for? 45 days. And then it was broken another 23 times in the same year. 
So what then happened there, the belief about how things work and what is possible lay beyond four minutes. And then Roger Bannister said, aha, uh -huh, let me shatter that. Here's a brand new paradigm. He's the one that broke it. So he's known as the paradigm shifter and then broke the belief system. Once people believed something can be done, then everything changed. And that happens too. So we have beliefs within ourselves about what can or what cannot be done. And even our beliefs, Joe, don't, do not have to be true in order for us to believe them. Yeah, because belief, like fear is a belief. It's, a, it's an emotional feeling which is created by the mind to believe that it's you, you can't do it. And you, you are right on that. So in saying that, belief and what else then in this category is, this, is the paradigm shift? Well, a new paradigm. So let, let's understand this in context of business and also in um, the achievement of success. And the three biggest mistakes I see, the first one, inertia. Inertia means I've learned some new stuff and in order to achieve my success or to do better in my work or to take my company to another level, I know I should change, but I'm not going to. I refuse. That is inertia. So there's some business businesses that uh, you will recognize, such as, um, well, I'll name some in a moment for you. But vinyl records, for instance. Why would you want to keep on producing vinyl records when the CD comes out and that tape and things like that? I mean, they're making a little bit of a revival now, but only in a retro. They're not mainstream. VHS videotape. Why would you continue making video recorders when we're now live streaming? There's no place for them. So paradigm shifts happen. But what happens in business? People refuse to make the change and those businesses die and go bust. That's inertia. The second one you've touched on, which is procrastination. I know I should change. I know I need to make these differences in my life. I'm a little busy right now, so I'll get on to that tomorrow. And then you get to tomorrow, yeah, I've got some other stuff to get on with today. And it never quite happens. Uh, if you think about that in business, the seven most expensive words in business, but we've always done it that way. So when you're trying to make change happen in business, um, think, how much does it cost, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So inertia and procrastination is like, yeah, I, I know I should change, but yeah, but we've always done it this way. So people don't like change. We don't like new stuff. And I, when I'm at conferences and training courses, I, I say to people, what do you want? They say, well, teach me something new. So I give them something new and it, the reaction is, oh, wow, not that new. Because people don't like change. 
We don't like it, although we think we do. So moving it forward in business, rather than doing new and radical, use words like upgrade. Don't use the word change. It's an upgrade uh, or a, a little further development. So it's an easier move for some people. Yeah, but, but that's it. Everybody wants to, it has to be, you know, simple. Now, something can be simple, but it, it's not easy. Okay. And a lot of people as well do, in the win-win world that we are in, they're willing to throw X amount on something for a quick fix. Having someone else doing it and hoping they will give them the success that the other person has without doing the work. And the more money that they think they'll throw towards it, they'll think that it someone else may do it. It's it's that um, instant gratification. It takes time. And just going back to the very beginning when we started this interview, like it was 15 years for you to really get the ball rolling where people will look at you now and they want to be you, but they want to be you in six months. Or less. Or less. <laughs> <laughs> Or me in a year, or two <laughs> two weeks. You know, just get your hair cut. <laughs> yeah, so you're right about that. So I'm trying to choose my words because the steps and the definition of success has a ro- it's a roadmap, and in your you we know. You know, say in your opinion, but you know, we know that you have over the last 30 odd years really nailed that down and figured it out. And we talk about fear and we talk about, you know, procrastination. What else should someone be mindful of if they do want to take that next step to to achieving the, or hitting the goals that they desire? That's a really great question. I'll try and simplify it if I may. What I found in all of these successful people was they all do 11 things in common. Let's call it the 11 steps of success. Step one is perhaps the most difficult. And I would say that probably 97% of people can't do it. That's how difficult it is. So what is it? What is step one? What is the answer to this question that you've asked me? It's real simple. What do you want? And most people are unable to answer that question. So let, let, let me give you some. I've got, I've got lots and lots of case studies I'll share here with you. The, the, the real answer to this is specificity. Now, I, I was... Um, I was on a podcast, so I was doing a podcast show and I was interviewing this lady and what she wanted from me, she wanted to write a book. So I said, okay, what can I do to help you to write a book? Uh, is, is writing a book within your belief system? Do you believe you can do it? And she went, oh, yes. I said, I've already written a book. I want to write a second book. And I said, all right, okay. 
So why do you want me to help you to write a second book if you've already written one? She said, because you're the most successful author in history in your field and I'd like to do the same in my field. And I said, okay, so why do you think it not happened with your first book? She said, that's why I want to speak with you, Jeff, because I don't understand. Now, here's this backstory. Here's what's happened. This is the difference now between really successful people and those who are perhaps not as successful as they'd like to be. And it's the specificity of how they write their goals. Most people don't know how to write a goal, and that comes on to what do you want. Let me give you an example here, and I'll come back to our book story in a moment. When I speak to um, younger people, I'll say, what do you want? And say, oh, more money. And I say, okay, I'll put my hand in my pocket, take out a dollar bill, give them the dollar bill. And I said, there you are, your dreams are fulfilled. And they go, no, that, yeah, that's not what I meant. You know that. And I said, no, no, I don't know that. What you asked for was more money. And what you have in your hand is more money. What you were not specific on was how much money you actually want. Joe, that right there is probably the most important golden nugget in success that I can give you. It sounds super simple, but most people can't say what they want. What would a successful person say? They'll say, I want $3.8 million. I want to see it on my bank account. I want to see it on June the 10th, 2024 at midday. I'll see lots of other transactions there, but the sum total will be $3.8 million or whatever the figure will be, as opposed to just saying more money. 93.9 Dublin South FM. The mindset would be for someone who... You know, can't God, we can't afford that. And then there's the other mindset. What do I need to be able to afford that? And one of the things which I, with this step one, I have seen companies change overnight because we have got clear on their message, clear on what they do. And I believe that once you gain that clarity and identifying, it could be your purpose or one of your purposes, something in the ether changes and things happen unexpectedly. I call it like a slap in the face that actually then start putting the procedures and laying out that road for, for them to achieve their goal. But I've also seen then when these things happen, because they're not adjusting, they fall off the path as well. This is how I view it. Ask and you will receive. Sounds real simple, right? But you have to know what to ask for. So I don't want to delve into religion or anything like that. I'm just going to have this collective word that says the universe. So when we ask for help from whomever, I'm going to say the universe. I say intuition. Intuition, yeah. So if you're asking the universe for assistance, the universe will help you. But it has to know what you want. So let's go back to this lady who wanted to help me with her second book. I said, 
when you first put your goal together, her name is Christine. I said, when you put your goal together, Christine, can you tell me, explain what was in your goal? She said, yeah, I wanted to write a book. I said, was there anything else in your goal? She said, no, that, that was it. That was the dream. And I said, okay, well, the universe has helped you and delivered because that's what you've got. You wrote a book. And she says, yes, but my garage is full of books that aren't selling. And I said, but selling a book is a completely different goal to writing a book. I said, and that was never in your goal. So the universe delivered on exactly what you asked for. If before writing your book, and this is when I mentor people for writing a book, I hold them off writing for quite a long time. And I, Joe, you and I have gone through this process. It's why do you want to write this book? Who is it for? What will they gain from it? When they hold it, what will they feel? What will they see? What will they hear? How many copies will you be selling? And it's all of the things that surround a best-selling book without the actual writing of the book itself. And I spent about four months preparing to write before I actually write. And that's because in my goal, I want to make sure that I'm writing a book that people want to buy rather than writing a book that I want to write. And the two are completely different things. I would agree with you um, because in that process of writing the book, and it was that's when you said it to me, who do you want to write the book for? And most people want to write it for themselves. But I start dreaming at night about a best-selling book. And I was trying to come up with a name and you know that the, the name for me is not important. It's the process, but I was having dreams at night about di this book taking off and on bookshelves around the world and people reading it and, you know, saying on the loo, you know, knowledge. Um, I've read some of the best articles on the loo, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, but it, it was that dreaming at night and then waking up in the morning and I came up with the title that morning, that time between when I woke and still in stumor that I actually came up with somewhat of a title. Now it'll change in that, but you're right. It's that process. But one thing that I just want to, I want to just park and ask you is I know so many people have written detailed goals and intentions mapping out what they want because you know they've read the law of attraction or the secret or other stuff like this and they said to me i've done this but they never achieve it mm -hmm. and i say to them it's because you're not implementing it or you've written the goal and you feel that then the universe is just going to deliver to you and it doesn't work that way Mm. I, um, I put a message on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago, a little meme, and it said in great big letters, goals don't work. And I thought that's controversial, right? But then in, underneath in much smaller letters, it says goals don't work unless you do. 
So, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the formula for success uh, is really straightforward and it's knowing what you want and then assessing, do you have all the knowledge and the know-how to get where you want? So you can calculate that. How much knowledge do I have compared with what I need? That's the first bit. It was Francis Bacon who coined the phrase, knowledge is power. Absolute baloney. I hate that phrase. Knowledge is not power. It's the implementation of your knowledge that delivers power. So the formula for success then is knowing what to do and then doing what you know. And I've also had lots of people like yourselves fall into two categories. They either don't assess what they need to know and they implement stuff and hope it works. But more speed in the wrong direction doesn't help. So that's why the clarity on your goal needs to be so important. Then you assess what you need to know, what you need to learn, where do you need to go train, who do you need to help you on that bit. And then once you have the implementation, implement it. And it's the knowledge you have multiplied by your implementation that delivers the, your propensity to succeed. Out of sight, out of mind. You can maybe write a goal and if you don't review it and look at it regularly, it then just, you forget about it. And the world takes over. One of the things as well, and I'll ask you, is this one of the 11 steps is to have a coach and have a mentor? You know, great basketball players, great footballers, great musicians all have had mentors and people to assist them, great speakers. You can't go it alone. So is the, one of the steps in getting someone as a coach no. Interesting. Now, there's, that's really surprising, right? So um, what the 11 steps are, are the essential things. You can probably come up with 15 or 20 steps to success, uh, other things that will help you succeed. One of those would be a mentor. The 11 steps are saying these are the fundamentals that, that no matter what program you look at, no matter what you achieve, you've got to have these things included. Now, what's fascinating is in lots of the many successful people I've spoken to, quite a few of these steps are missing. In many of the books and audio program I've listened to, quite a few of these steps are missing because it works on a psychological level and it's what's happening with your brain and this connection we have with success and failure. So uh, would a mentor help you? Yes, providing you have the right mentor. And you can do a whole program about how to choose the right mentor for you. Because I know of people who've had a mentor and it's not the right person for them. And mentors tend to be really cool salespeople. So just having a mentor, mm -mm. what I would say though, and they don't have to be a mentor, is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. If you want to do something, 
find someone else who's already done it and study what they have done and how they did it. Now, you don't necessarily have to meet them, but that would be a great start. If that person chooses to help you, would it help you? Absolutely, it would. Is it 100% necessary? No. Just a nice help. Which then brings up the other question, and that's, you know, accountability. And people do seem to need to have someone to answer to. Maybe that's because of our education system, because of procrastination, that when the human mind is given a task and they don't want to feel inadequate or be let down that having that person that they can go to helps them achieve each step that they need to achieve as well. It's, it's a support mechanism. Uh, support mechanism is different. So having a support mechanism is one of the 11 steps without doubt, having the right support. Um, let's, let's come back onto this, what you just said. That's a slightly different thing. So if we, if we imagine a slider, left and right, the middle is balanced. On the left, we have uh, internal frame of reference. On the right, we have external frame of reference. What does that mean in English? Someone who has a external frame of reference means that when they make decisions, whether that's to buy something or anything like that, they need something outside of themselves to justify or to validate their decision. For instance, when I wrote my first book, I had the foreword written by a professor from Cardiff University, Professor Garrel Reese, CBE. Now, Anyone who wants to buy the book, who has an external frame of reference, will think, ah, this must be a good book because the foreword is written by Professor Garrel Reese, CBE. So they're taking external data, pulling it into themselves, and then using it to validate their decision. If we go to the complete opposite end of the scale, someone who has an internal frame of reference... They'll say, I really don't care what other people think. I don't care whether this book has got a, a forward in it or not. I only care about my own thoughts. So this is not to do with schooling or upbringing. It's one of the programs inside of us to say, where is our frame of reference? Do we have... And neither is right or wrong here. It's about understanding yourself and how you make decisions. So are you evenly balanced? So sometimes on some things you need to see a testimonial or something like that. Or are you really don't care what other people think and you can do it all by yourself. So if you look at my website, you'll see testimonials. Some people love them and it can validate me. Other people completely ignore them and don't care. They make up their own mind. Which one would you be more? We're, we're in both camps. 
Mm-hmm. Which one are you stronger in? I don't think it's a person per se. I think we move depending on the context. So if I'm going to buy something like a, a microphone or a computer or a camera or something like that, then I'll go and search. I'll look at video reviews and things like that and then compare. And I'm interested what other people think. If I'm going to make a decision in my company and I want to do something, then I'll probably go way more to an internal frame of reference. And I I tend not to look for external support because my belief system is this is the way I want to move my company. So, But there are other occasions where I really do want to know what other people think. So it's not a person who is. I think the person moves with the contextual situation. Where the power comes from, Joe, is to stand back and witness yourself and say, what am I doing here? Am I, am, do I now have an internal frame of reference on this? Do I have an external frame or am I balanced? And neither is right. It's about understanding where you are on this particular issue from i'm giggling here no people can't because see me because it's radio but i'm just picturing jeff going car shopping <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a joke <laughs> that, that's a shocker to the salesman because <laughs> yeah so um okay let's go back to kpi and which is entwined or is the foundation of success and what you put into your first book as well. So what are the KPIs? You also mentioned before that when people look at key performers indicators, they look at them backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is, what is the KPI? KPI stands for key performance indicators. What is a KPI? What is it that they do? They measure where you are and put a roadmap in place to where you want to be. Now, coming to what you just said, in in an earlier interview, many, many, many moons ago, I said people looking them backwards, upside down and inside out. Why do I say that? It's because when people get key performance indicators, whether that be gross profit percentage, utilization, whatever it is in your business that you're measuring, when they get the key performance indicator result, they think it's an answer. It's not. It's a question. Why do I say that? And this is because your life is about cause and effect. If you don't like the effects in your life, you can't change them, but you can change the causes. So the causes are the things that you do and the effects are the results that you get. You can't change results. You can only change the things that you do. So what key performance indicators do, they're all effects. So if you get something like gross profit percentage, that's a result. It's telling you um, what you're buying at and what you're selling at. But the question is, 
you're questioning if your gross profit percentage is 33% and someone else is at 40% on the same product in the same market, and then they say, well, what is creating the difference? And there lies the question. Because the two roots, the two factors can only be your buying price and your selling price. So if you're buying something for $10 and you're selling it for $15, then your gross profit is $5. Your gross profit percentage is 33%, 3 divided by the fifth, sorry, $5 gross profit divided by the $15 you're selling price, then you've only got two things to look at. So if your buying price is the same, then you need to question what you're doing with the selling price. Is it the sales process? Is it the way you're marketing? Is it the people and what are they doing? So what key performance indicators do, they lead you to the cause of the results in your business. And that's why I say people just take them as a result and move on without correctly identifying the causes. Which is, is, is bang on because you may have the same price. You may be purchasing for the same price and everything is equal. And the only difference that could make the person going for the sale with you or me is likability. Yeah, could be. Now, if we're talking about sales, as we've spoken about before, likability is one factor and the other one is trust. Yeah. The, these two things govern everything <clears throat> in our lives. So if you're selling something or, or let's say if you're buying something, either or, if you're going to buy something, these two things are hardwired in our brain. So the first decision you make, completely subconsciously, now I've told you about it, you'll be aware of it. When you go buy something, you automatically default to, do I trust this person? Do I trust this company? And this level of trust is binary. It's on or it's off. You trust or you don't trust. You know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You are or you're not. So the trust factor, the trust factor, you need to think about when I'm positioning my business or when I'm trying to help someone to buy something, how can I strengthen or how can I convey the belief of trust? So the second one which you brought up is like. Like is not binary. Like is on a sliding scale. So let's say we have zero to 10. If you first trust somebody, but you don't like them very much, what will happen is you will trust them enough to buy from them, but because you don't like them very much, price will become an issue. And you'll, you'll make decisions based on, you'll buy from the cheapest. If we move this slider and you're able to increase the likability factor and move it way off the scale, let's move it up to full 10. So if I like you and I trust you and I really like you, and you can probably think now of something in your life where you've paid more for a product that you could have got cheaper elsewhere, 
but you both trust and you like this person more and therefore you buy from them and pay more from them. It happens with restaurants, it happens with products, it happens with all kinds of things. Trust is on or off. You buy or you don't buy. If you like someone, you don't trust them, you won't buy. If you trust someone and you like them a lot, you buy. If you like them a little, you'll still buy, but then all of the other factors and particularly price comes it's into account. Like it's like a tongue twister. Yeah. <laughs> so so let's let's go back then. Um like we could continue this interview on for hours and hours. <laughs> I'll come back in another ten years again. Come back in ten years. <laughs> but it's it really homing in on how many like the audience, people are listening to the radio. They're curious. You know, and they're mm-hmm. They're, I know that they're going, okay, what are these 11 steps so they can have a checklist to see which ones they are implementing and which ones they should know about or not aware about that they should implement? Okay. It's a great question. I'm asked this all the, all time. the time. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm going to start you off on the process. We've started already. Will we cover all 11? No chance. So maybe I'll come on at, a, at another time and then com- complete the 11. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll even write the book one day. So the first step, as I've said earlier, the most difficult step is to know what do you want and to have it with absolute clarity if you say i want to write a book the universe will deliver you write a book you can't then complain later and say well no one's buying my book well that's not what you ask for so you have to be careful what you ask for and be specific and know what you want that's step one step two is to write it down now when i did my first book back in 2001, when it was published. In 2000, I wrote, wrote it down. Now, I don't mean I sat at a computer and typed it. You can do that to help you with your clarity. But when you've got it and you've got it sorted, get a pen and paper and write it down. There's something, Joe, about being connected when you physically write something with a pen and paper. Absolutely. So step one is to know what you want. Step two is to write it down. And then step three is what you said earlier, out of sight, out of mind. How frequently should you review your daily goal? I think the clue is in the question. Yeah, daily. Yeah, and you'll always get more of what you focus on. Jeff Smith, thanks for coming on Dublin South FM. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for those great questions, Joe. I really enjoyed it. I feel blessed. feel blessed. Yes, folks, that was Jeff Smith, a good friend. And um, Jeff's website is jeffsmith.com. Jeff-Smith.com. And you can find all the information about his KPI books on sales and multiple, there's lots of videos and information on there. And I am driving me mad to write that book. 
on the eleventh set of success, which um, if you get out to Dubai, you'll hear him talk about. That's it. So remember, there's one thing: live your dreams, write them down, get focused, and plan the future. Never on your deathbed will you be told, or will you say, "Where's my laptop? I'd wish I'd worked more hours." I wish I was stuck traveling backwards and forwards to work. The only thing that will matter to you is your purpose and the people around you that you love and who care for you. So live your dreams, respect yourself and your family, and be grateful for the world that you have.